If you're looking for a vacation paradise, go south to Puerto Rico, hub of the Blue Caribbean. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On today's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are discussing the Insular Cases, a series of rulings from the early 20th century that set the course for the United States' relationship with its so-called territories, like Puerto Rico and Guam. Puerto Rico was ceded to the United States as a result of the Spanish-American War. The constitutional rights of citizens of these territories have been in dispute since the United States took control of them. There have been patchwork attempts to afford people who live in these places some rights. In 1917... Congress declared all Puerto Ricans to be United States citizens. But people in Puerto Rico, Guam, and elsewhere still can't vote in federal elections, and the Supreme Court's insular cases and the policies that they've influenced sit at the root of this inequality. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have trained our constitution to fight against civil rights like an mrna vaccine trains our bodies to fight against infectious disease <laughs> i am peter i'm here with michael hey everybody and rhiannon hi hi i got the vaccine guys dose <laughs> dose one in the bag we're all vaxxed right we're all vaxxed by the time this episode drops i'll be fully vaxxed i'm only a few days away so nice i've, I've only got the first dose it was a uh, about a day and a half ago feeling pretty foggy and yeah. uh, and fatigued. My arm hurts. Um, uh, I'm hopped off that derna, as the kids are saying. Uh, y- y- yoinked off the dern. But and I-, I figured, why not take this incredible fog that has consumed my brain for two straight days and talk about an area of the law that I had absolutely no prior knowledge of. Uh, Perfect. Seemed, right? I think yeah. that's where we want to yeah. go. Mm-hmm. Today, we are talking about the insular cases uh, we are re- reaching way back in time here, farther, farther back than any case we've covered so far to 1901. And yet not quite that far back at all, as, we'll, <laughs> as we will eventually. Yeah, get good to. point. Yeah. <laughs> and like the title suggests, uh, we're not really covering one case, but a series of cases that came in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. At the time, all the big countries were having fun going to war with one another, over like various little territories that meant nothing to them other than serving as like a nominal indicator of their respective spheres of power and influence. <laughs> and America in particular had spent the century following its founding, expanding westward, eventually hitting the ocean and just sort of kind of eyeballing other areas to do a little subjugation to. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So you get the Spanish-American War in 1898, which famously starts after there's an explosion aboard the USS Maine. And the United States government intentionally fabricates a claim that the Spanish did it. Oh. Thankfully, that was the last time the United States would ever fabricate an attack or <laughs> otherwise purposefully lie to foment <laughs> domestic support for a war of colonial aggression. <laughs> Could you imagine if we just kept doing that repeatedly over the course of the next century? Yeah, I mean, unheard of, not acceptable, totally inappropriate. That's so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the U.S. wins the war, you know. Uh, USA number one, and the Treaty of Paris is signed. And the treaty divvies up the spoils of war, which, of course, are mostly territories full of actual human beings. And when I say territories, that's what the law calls them. That's what everyone calls them. 
But I think we should probably just be saying colonies, right? Yeah. Um, yep. That yeah, is the absolutely. accurate description. Spain cedes control of Puerto Rico, Guam, Cuba, and the Philippines to the United States. And now there is a lingering question with respect to those colonies. And that question is, what is going on with those colonies? <laughs> what kind of rights do they have? Yeah. What yeah. exactly are they? And so forth. It's like a Jerry Seinfeld stand-up routine <laughs> here. What is the deal? <laughs> I told you, I am absolutely stranking off the Derna guy. <laughs> so... The question of the scope of the constitutional rights afforded to people within those colonies is answered by the Supreme Court in the insular cases. These cases are the legal foundation for the de facto apartheid that exists today. And these are cases about colonies from 120 years ago. So as you may have predicted, you're about to hear some racism, right? Yeah. But what's important to understand is not just that these cases are racist. You know, it's 1901. Of course, they're racist, right? right. It's, it, it almost goes without mm-hmm. saying. I think what's important to understand is how foundational that racism is to these cases and the extent to which the modern relationship between the United States and its colonies is built explicitly atop that racism. That's right. So we've given given some high-level background, but should we dive a little deeper here, Ree? Yeah, totally. So one thing we want to know up top, I'm glad that Peter clarified that we are referring to these places as colonies because that is sort of the definition, the word that feels most accurate. But then the other thing I want to note about language is just a quick explanation. These are called the insular cases. That's because insular in this context refers to places that are an island or having to do with islands. So mm-hmm. that's why they're called the insular yeah. cases. Now it's all almost, almost always like a metaphor, right? right. Like a, an island of the soul. <laughs> right. Like we've right. created a very insular community in our Slack. Yes. Right. We are slowly radicalizing them and <laughs> right. turning them right. into an army. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nerds, we know that you got high scores on the SAT. Anyways, so... Hold on, um, I, I just, I can't let this go on. Re got an extremely high score on the SAT. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Anyways, okay, whatever. So the insular cases, guys. Before these cases made it to the Supreme Court, just about at the beginning of the 20th century, there was debate about whether these colonies, Guam, the Philippines... Cuba and Puerto Rico, as Peter stated, about whether those colonies should just be given statehood and participate in the union as states, just like the other states, right? Just like your Virginia and your New York and your Florida. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the McKinley administration more or less seemed to take for granted, at least initially, that Puerto Rico in particular would become a state. The Carroll Commission in 1899 reported that the people of Puerto Rico had qualities conducive to a, quote, high type of citizenship and that Puerto Ricans had, quote, good claims to be considered capable of self-government. But, you know, it's at about this time that the think tanks of the day, Harvard and Yale, start publishing their own views, firing off their own hot takes on what should happen in these territories. So, for example, an article published in the Harvard Law Review in 1899 called Our New Possessions 
<laughs> it was written by Professor James Bradley Thayer. And in that article, Thayer counsels hesitation on incorporating the Philippines in particular into the American system of laws. In that piece, he says, quote, America should not forget her precedence of teaching nations how to live. There is no lack of power in our nation of legal constitutional power to govern these islands as colonies, substantially as England might govern them. So we should be clear that while there is some support for sort of, um, you know, I, I guess what we could call exporting our system of laws to new places and making, uh, you know, brand spanking new American citizens, there's also a bunch of political elites at this time in the late 1890s, early 1900s, mm -hmm. who took the lesson of the American Revolution to be like, America should be doing colonial rule just like England did. Yeah, that's that's some real like take up the white man's burden shit. Right. Like, yes, absolutely. yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they had seen England get completely embarrassed repeatedly for a century and they're like, that could be us. Right. <laughs> so, you know, obviously we can't provide like a full accounting of the political history here. But I think one of the key things to understand is domestic political support for statehood exists to some extent initially, but rapidly fades after a protracted insurrection breaks out in the Philippines. So Congress has these like extremely racist discussions about what to do with these colonies following the insurrection. And those discussions are colored by the fact that the uprising has everyone nervous. Right. To give you a taste, Congressman Jacob Bromwell supported full constitutional rights for Puerto Rico. And he said we should not react to, quote, Filipinos, the unruly and disobedient, by disciplining and punishing Puerto Rico, the well-behaved and well-disposed. Mm -hmm. Again, this is the progressive take <laughs> right, on the situation. Right, right. right. We got to separate the good brown people from the bad brown people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yes. that's that's it. Well, well-behaved. Right. 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 The progressive view is some brown people are okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. The more racist position taken by Senator Bate of Tennessee, who described Filipinos as, quote, physical weaklings of low stature with black skin, closely curling hair, flat noses, thick lips, and large, clumsy feet. Jesus. Abhorrent. What the fuck? There is something funny about, like, the types of things that creep their way into old-school mm -hmm. racism. Right. Like, I have large and clumsy feet. I didn't realize that someone could do racism to me because of it. I wasn't aware that that was, like, was, like something you could right. trace to my, yes. to my inferior genetics. And right. the idea that, like, you know, the, the superior races have, like, these, these tiny, dainty feet. You could you could fit them into a child's shoe, the, the white man's feet. Must, it's just it's it's just so bizarre. There's also this is a weird time when white people thought they were better at, like, everything. Like now discrimination is like other races are like physically mm. superior in some ways. And we are we are like the intellectuals. Right. right. Or whatever the fuck super racist people think we're more civilized. But back then. They were like, no, we're actually better at like everything too. Like we're stronger, right? Cooler, our feet are better. <laughs> it's just comprehensive. Right. So all that like racist debate Peter was describing was in regards to this bill introduced by Senator Joseph Foraker, who supported full citizenship for Puerto Ricans and intended the bill to establish like a new government on the island. But Congress was just like too racist. Right. To handle that. And so the Forker Act, as it passed, which became known in Puerto Rico as the Organic Act, didn't include citizenship. 
it did create a system of colonial government that had an elected bicameral legislature, a Supreme Court, and a governor who was appointed by the U.S. president, which is just like so nakedly colonial. It's not even like a true illusion of self-rule, right? Right, exactly. And this was funded. This new government that was being established was funded by imposing a tariff on goods imported into Puerto Rico from the United States. Yeah. So this legislation exists, but there's still legal and academic debate over the nature of that legislation and the extent to which the Constitution applies to these colonies. Does it cover them in full? Not at all. Or do they get some sort of rights combo? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And these issues bubble up in court cases and make their way to the Supreme Court. One thing to note before we get into these cases is they're not really about civil rights in and of themselves. They're mostly about economic rights. And that might seem odd. But at the time, courts were often perceived as just a place for business people to sort of sort out their disputes Mm -hmm. more than a place where civil rights and liberties can be vindicated, which is not to say that there weren't cases about civil constitutional rights. There were. This is just a couple of years after Plessy v. Ferguson, for example. That's the separate but equal case. But especially when it comes to something like American colonies, business interests are the primary concern. And the actual civil rights of people who live there are simply not in the center of the public consciousness and are really just sort of an ancillary issue, right? right? Something that is implicated by these cases, yeah, exactly. but not necessarily the focus of them. Right. And the hook for this is actually that tariff, right? All these cases, it's the tariff that's funding the government that ends up being the dispute that gives rise to all the cases we're going to discuss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So turning to those cases, like Peter said, there are actually more than one case. It's several cases in the scope of a few years at the beginning of the 20th century that are known collectively as the insular cases. And I think we should name a few of the cases and say the holding of each of them just so we have an idea of what Michael is talking about, like what the Supreme Court is actually deciding and what the consequences will be later on for these holdings. So the first case is called DeLima versus Bidwell. In that case, the Supreme Court held that Puerto Rico is not a foreign country for tariff purposes. And in that case, the court actually used some pretty favorable language that suggested that perhaps Puerto Rico and its fellow territories would be treated as if they were domestic to the United States, that perhaps the Constitution would apply fully to these kind of new geographical acquisitions and the people who lived there. Right. And and do we know how this is pronounced? Goats? Gutsa? Gutsa. 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 I would just say goats. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's a it's a German businessman, people. Uh, apologies. None of us are fluent. Goats v. United <laughs> States is basically the same holding, but also applies to Hawaii, which, of course, was not a state at the time. It wouldn't become a state till the 50s or 60s. Right. And then there's this other case called Dooley v. United States, where the court held goods imported into Puerto Rico moving forward would be taxed like domestic goods. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then we get to Downs v. Bidwell, um, which is not the last of these cases, but I think is the seminal case for our purposes. Right. Um, Absolutely. And because of that, we're not going to talk about the rest of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> there are a few more after this, uh, and some people define the insular cases differently, and some of them stretch past 1901. Uh, some of them don't. But I think this case is the keystone. The case is also about tariffs on goods from Puerto Rico. But with a twist, this case, unlike the past few we've discussed, is brought 
After the passage of the Foraker Act, uh, which Michael mentioned, uh, and specifically imposes tariffs on goods from Puerto Rico. And someone challenges this law saying, hey, it's unconstitutional for Congress to do this because Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Yeah. The Constitution doesn't allow for the imposition of different tariffs within the country. Right. There can't be tariffs from state to state, et cetera. Right. But the Supreme Court in a five to four decision says, no, actually, that is fine. And this, in many ways, is the heart of the insular cases, because this is where the Supreme Court is for the first time very clearly saying, look, the Constitution does not entirely apply to these colonies. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And that sort of weird hedge, which really has no clear basis in the Constitution itself, is what has defined America's relationship with its colonies for over a century. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk really quickly about the 5-4 decision. I'm glad, Peter, that you said that it was a 5-4 decision, because I think like the background shows how the Supreme Court is, like we're saying all the time, it's always doing politics Mm -hmm. and always has. So like Peter said, like there's no constitutional basis for this decision prior to these territorial acquisitions. In fact, like the precedent in the U.S. for what happened in terms of citizenship and laws in new territories was for those new places to basically become states. Right. Yeah. Manifest Destiny had encouraged the U.S. expansion across the North American continent. Mm-hmm. And little by little, these new places were becoming states and the citizens of those places had full constitutional rights. So at this time, there really is no precedent for saying that the Constitution applies a little bit, but not all the way to this place <laughs> right, that the United right. States like says that it owns and says that it is a part of its country. Right. And then just kind of turning to the case itself, the fact that it is a five to four decision that like certainly shows a divided court coming down on one side of the issue. But also the opinion itself is extremely hodgepodge with mm-hmm. with multiple justices, you know, concurring in part or dissenting in part. In fact, like the single opinion that gets the most votes from the justices is the dissent. So it's not just a close call. But like before Peter gets to the substance of this opinion, I think it's also important to note like who these justices were, who these people were, who who make up this kind of precarious five person majority on a narrow holding of those five justices. Four of them, Justices Brown, Shearis, White, and Gray, those four were members of the majority in Plessy versus Ferguson about five years before this, largely known as one of, if not the worst, Supreme Court decision ever. Mm -hmm. Justice Gray was a member of the majority in Elk versus Wilkins, which was decided in the 1880s. In that case, the Supreme Court held that Native Americans were not protected by the Constitution, were not U.S. citizens. Justice White had been a senator who was most known for being like this sugar tariff protectionist for the state of Louisiana and also outspoken against the annexation of Hawaii as a state. He was protecting Louisiana's interest in sugar farms and didn't want Hawaii to compete. Justice Shearis had been a railroad lawyer before he became a Supreme Court justice. That was a career you could ride to the top back in the day. And yeah, and he regularly voted in favor of those industry interests. You know, for his part, Justice Brown was on record as hating Spanish Americans. Justice McKenna was known as a straight up dumbass. He was described at one point as having a mind, quote, uncluttered by the complex dicta of legal scholarship. That's supposed to be an own, but I got to say, I think that's like, in my mind, that's like a pretty high compliment. That's true. But his his wife was the one that said it. 
And also back in the day, those opinions were like three pages long. So if you were uncluttered by that dicta, you were like, that's true. There was no legal scholarship at the time. Um, and so these are the people I think like I just want to uh, focus on the the political nature of these decisions. And when you when you kind of like zoom out, like these are the people who decide the legal questions at issue in the insular cases. Right. Everyone is just the same as Daniel Day Lewis and there will be blood. That's right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So the controlling opinion here is pretty explicitly racist. Here's a quote. It is obvious that in the annexation of outlying and distant possessions, grave questions will arise from differences of race, habits, laws, and customs of the people, and from differences of soil, climate, and production, which may require action on the part of Congress that would be quite unnecessary in the annexation of contiguous territory inhabited only by people of the same race or by scattered bodies of native Indians. Oh, okay. Okay, so obviously that is racist. Yes. But I am not reading it to you to point out how racist these guys are. I'm reading it to you because this is the basis for the court's holding, right? right. The Supreme Court held that Congress should be able to treat these territories differently because they are occupied by other races. And I want to emphasize that because it's important to understand that it's, it's not that our political relationship with, for example, Puerto Rico is simply tinged by racism or that it has racist components. It is literally predicated upon the idea that the races are wholly distinct such that they need separate sets of laws. That's right. The legal rule created by the Supreme Court here is like first definition in the dictionary racism. Right? Totally. Like, yeah. It's not racist in like some abstract way that like a leftist professor is trying to explain to you. You know, it's, <laughs> uh, this is like pretty straightforward stuff. Right. And that racism is what our entire system of apartheid with respect to these colonies is built on. There's not some sophisticated rationale lurking in these opinions, right? The actual law of the land, and these cases have not been overturned, so it's still valid law, is that people in these colonies are too different from us for the Constitution to apply to them in full. Period. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And it makes me think of, you know, I mentioned the economic design of the Constitution back in our episode on San Antonio versus Rodriguez. But I want to, like, draw the connection again between racism and economics to to sort of emphasize once more, like, how the Supreme Court is always doing politics, particularly here. So, you know, just just noting that these cases are, are all about economic issues. Who can be taxed and how much and when, right? We aren't talking in the holdings. The justices aren't talking in these opinions about people's civil rights, literally. These questions about taxes are a major concern of the federal government at this time because the U.S. has just, you know, acquired these possessions, a.k.a. colonies. But it's also a major purpose of the U.S. federal government to begin with, you know, the creation of a national economy, the the oversight of a broader network of local economies, the ability to tax the production and movement of products, as well as tax its people. And beyond that, like a brand new, powerful federal government has the ability to exploit a newly acquired colony's natural resources, as well as the manpower, the labor of the colony's population. And so I think it's important to note like how views about the economy at this time, views about America's resources and wealth, America's international stature, they go hand in hand here with racist views about the people far away in these new colonies. You know, in order to 
to exploit them and their land economically. It helps if you have sort of this sociopolitical understanding of them as less than, as subhuman, as uncivilized. And by the same token, like it goes back and forth, right? The sick racism of these justices and of the U.S. government also serves as encouragement for the idea that our economic opportunities shouldn't be limited. And so, you know, the racism feeds the classism and the classism feeds the racism. And this is the foundation of American empire, which they are explicitly referring to in these cases and in Supreme Court jurisprudence at this time. They are saying, you know, the mission of American empire. And so I think it's it's right there in the way like racism and economic exploitation work together that you get these cases 120 years ago, but we still have them on the books today. Like Peter said, it's the same system operating right now. It's the same legal framework born out of that same racism and the consolidation of economic power that governs the United States relationship with those colonies to this day. That's right. I have a lot to say about this, but my glass is also empty and I <laughs> and I'd like to make myself a drink, so I need I need a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> Quick break, yeah. Hey everybody, thank you so much for supporting our Patreon. It means so much to us. If you're new here, welcome. You can find all of the perks for your membership, including previous members-only episodes at patreon.com slash 54pod. Thanks again for being cool and being nice. All right, so we're back. I've made myself a drink. King. I'm ready to go. And what I want to talk about is we said a lot that this is like these cases are the foundation for our current relationship with our colonies, that these cases are still good law and all that stuff. When Michael says good law, what he means is valid law. It hasn't been overturned. Right. And there are a lot of cases that are good law, but are ignored until they're formally overturned. And so I think it's worth sort of like getting into, especially because you might be like, well, look, I, Puerto Ricans, they're U.S. citizens, right? Like, I've heard that. Right. I know that. Right. And whatever. Like, So I think it's worth getting into the details on this a bit because it is still like, not only is it good law, it's like live legal issues. Right. Yeah. So like Puerto Ricans and Guam and all the U.S. territories actually are citizens via legislation via the Jones Act of 1917 except for some reason American Samoa I don't I don't I don't really know why <laughs> why they were like oh, fuck them right. but, but American Samoa residents are non-citizen nationals and they can get passports and their and all that stuff but their passports say like not a US citizen on their US passport and so this has led to you know unsurprisingly litigation there was a case in 2012, called Tuaua v. United States, where an American Samoan resident said, like, hey, the 14th Amendment says very clearly all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. That's the fucking language. That's a quote. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's like, look, I was born in the United States. American Samoa is an American colony. It's right. like it's a territory. Everybody agrees. This is part of the United States. I should be an American citizen. Simple enough. Right. right. You know, he had the benefit of having both the obvious meaning of the text and the context of the 14th Amendment, which was, you know, specifically passed to prevent America from creating a racial subcaste. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> right. Right. 
And like the history, like there are literally senators like on the Senate floor in during the discussion of the amendment saying like, well, you know, this obviously applies to the territories because like half of the United States were territories at that point. Right. So this wasn't like a question they didn't consider. Right. Like it's pretty clear. But the D.C. Circuit held that no, they expanded the insular cases, which were based on the tax clause which said like taxes have to be uniform throughout the United States and said like, look, that's true in the 14th Amendment as well. If you're not in the United States for the purposes of the tax clause, you're not in the United States for the purposes of the 14th Amendment either. And sorry, you're not a U.S. citizen. And that was the Obama administration, by the way, that was was fighting American Samoan uh, citizenship. Yeah, right. There's another case live right now in the 10th Circuit Fittisamanu, the United States, same issue, right? Same exact issue, different circuit. The district court agreed with Fittisamanu and did a wonderful historical analysis and breakdown of the law going back to the 1600s and Jusoli, the rights of the land under like England and how if you were born in the king's domain, Right. Like you were an English citizen and how that was what was, you know, explicitly made law in the 14th Amendment and how the insular cases are not on point. It's a good, I think, instructional lesson for any of our law students and lawyers on how to handle difficult precedent, which is just to say, look, that's about something else. Right. That's about the tax clause. And we're not talking about the tax clause here. We're talking about the 14th Amendment. And so who cares? And Trump fought that, citing heavily to the insular cases, and that's pending before the Tenth Circuit. Uh, and it's an open question how the Tenth Circuit will rule and how the Biden administration will respond. Right. right. It's a very different sort of political world we live in now than we did in 2012, right? Like Puerto Rican statehood is a big political issue and goal of the current Democratic Congress, right? as is D.C. statehood, which is already a bill that's making its way through Congress, right? So like territories and how we treat them is on people's minds, and there might be a big political cost to coming out in favor of, uh, you know, expanding the insular cases. But, you know... Who knows, right? Like Obama was on the other side. And I think we see the dangers of this sort of reasoning, this sort of acceptance of this racist logic in Trump. Like they didn't want to stop with the territories, right? Trump was talking about ending birthright citizenship in the United States, like in the states proper. Right. Right. Yeah. And there are conservative scholars who are going out and saying, well, look, it says, you know, under the jurisdiction thereof. And that means that if you're a non-resident alien, it doesn't really apply to you and blah, 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 and all this shit. We got to get rid of anchor babies. And it's just the same dressed up racism from 1901 in the insular cases in 2020. Exactly parading itself as like something with academic rigor. Right. And it's here. It's now. Yeah. It's still an issue. It's still a problem, which is why it's important that we are like clear on our values on this. And that's like maximally like everyone who's in the United States, everyone who's a part of it should have full and equal representation in citizenship. Right. 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 The current status is disgusting and untenable. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's my piece. Yeah. So, so like I mentioned, there are other insular cases, right? Mm-hmm. There's a few more in 1901. Some people define it more broadly. So there's cases in like 1903 and four. Some people go over to the 20s when there are, there are this sort of mesh of cases about the rights of people within the colonies and the rights of the colonies themselves. But the bottom line is simple. Rather than create a legal framework where the Constitution applies to the people in these colonies in full, the court takes a patchwork approach where some rights apply and some don't. And you sort of figure it out as as you go along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, broadly speaking, the holding of the insular cases kind of taken together is that residents of unincorporated territories like Puerto Rico, Guam and the Philippines do not have full constitutional rights, while residents of like the so-called incorporated territories do have full constitutional rights because those territories like Hawaii were at the time on a path to statehood. Right. 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 That was like the big difference, right? Was like whether or not you were supposed to become a state eventually. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there are tons of cases and new laws covering these issues in the first couple decades of the 20th century. And you don't really need to know every detail. But the Jones Act, for example, gives Puerto Ricans citizenship or at least a path to citizenship. And in the middle of the century, the governor of Puerto Rico openly talks about taking strides towards self-determination, although, for the record, he was more quietly uh, assuring Congress that no significant change was coming. Yeah. (laughs) And so these colonies, these the so-called unincorporated colonies, just sort of sit in limbo. Yeah. And at no point did anyone in these colonies gain the right to have their votes count in presidential elections or gain actual representation in Congress. The apartheid system evolves but it remains in place. Yeah. And that system of apartheid, which was created by this kind of mishmash of Supreme Court cases and patchwork legislation throughout the 20th century, it's led to a system that is decidedly separate and unequal for residents of these colonies. So, for example, in Puerto Rico, like Michael said, you know, while Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, they were given citizenship by virtue of legislation being passed, like the Jones Act, rather than by the Supreme Court finding that the Constitution applied fully to Puerto Rico. So because their citizenship is not derived by the Constitution, citizens of Puerto Rico do not have representation in the U.S. Congress, and they can't vote in the Electoral College, so they can't vote for the president. They are exempt from federal income taxes. And before you're like, oh, well, that's a good thing. They don't have to pay taxes. Well, that reduces the amount of federal assistance available to people on the Puerto Rican Mm -hmm. island through, you know, Medicaid, SSI and TANF. Puerto Rico is entitled to a resident commissioner in the U.S. House, but this representative isn't allowed to vote on the floor of the House. They can only vote on procedural matters and in House committees. And so any U.S. citizen who lives in Puerto Rico is disenfranchised effectively at the federal level. Just literally a second class citizen. That's right. right. They don't vote. They don't have representation. Right. It would almost be preferable that they didn't even have the nominal representation that they do have because it's like... It's insulting. Right. And it, yeah. it's meant, it, at least in part, to obscure what's actually happening. Right. Which is that they don't have real representation in Congress. Right. It's bullshit. Right. 
Guam is another example we haven't talked about much yet. In addition to that same disenfranchisement, the indigenous people of Guam have not had self-governance since Magellan landed in 1521. Guam was first a colony of the Spanish and then Japan and now the United States. It is one of 17 territories in the world that the United Nations recognizes as a colony, defines as a colony. Guam is an incredibly strategic holding by the U.S. military because of where it's located in the Pacific Ocean. And today, more than a third of the island is only accessible to the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. The military in Guam have caused nuclear wastewater leaks. They conduct live firebomb testing. Right, yeah. And in general, they treat this place, including sacred burial and religious sites, like a game piece in Battleship. So that's the sort of like practical reality of the insular cases and, you know, the laws that govern the United States relationship with these colonies today. Right. By the way, just because we mentioned it up top, Cuba was also one of the so-called spoils of the Spanish-American War. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And was granted its independence a couple of years later, 1903 or so. And then, you know, 50 years later, we imposed brutal sanctions which have uh, stuck around for, what, 70 years, 60 or 70 years now? Yeah. So even the countries that sort of get away from this regime yeah. right. end up being brutalized by the United States. It, it's just uh, like thinking about the legal status of the Caribbean nations especially is just exhausting. Like yeah. the, just just pawns in powerful countries' games. That's right. Yeah. And it also, it's like you learn in con law, right, if not earlier in your first year of law school, that like we are a government with enumerated powers, which means that the government can't do anything that's not like specifically set out for it in the Constitution, right? right? Yeah. And then it's further limited by the Bill of Rights and all this stuff. But what the insular cases say is like, yeah, but actually, you know, here's this other power that's not listed in the Constitution that you can do, which is you can go out and just buy places and if you don't make them states, you can do whatever the fuck you want in them. Right. You can make them as sort of American-like or as like autocratic as you want. Yeah. Right? Really good point. And it's really up to you. And it's whether or not you want to put them on a path to statehood or not. And if you don't, you're very unchained in what you can do there. And it's just totally incompatible with everything else about our constitution and about our system of government, at least how it should be. Yeah. So we've been pretty heavily focused on Puerto Rico because I think you can kind of draw a straight line from the insular cases to the present day in a way that you can't quite as easily with the other colonies. Right. And the political moment there is getting a little bit anti-colonialist in recent years. The Clinton administration in the mid-90s phased out certain tax benefits that had long aided the island's economy Uh, And they were sort of a relic of the Cold War because the U.S. was sort of holding up its capitalist colonies as prosperous, right? And the economy gets hit hard in 2008. In 2014, there's a debt crisis, uh, continues to this day that has resulted in enormous amounts of economic turmoil and fucking private equity companies buying up half the utilities of the island. Yeah. And then in 2017, Hurricane Maria devastates the island. And the Trump administration's reaction made it clear that Puerto Ricans will always, to American politicians, be viewed as second-class citizens. Yeah. And I think that's sort of like the definitive moment in modern Puerto Rican political history 
like most things, the difference between the Trump administration and any other Republican administration is either functionally nothing or nominal. But Trump says the quiet part loud. And with Hurricane Maria, the quiet part was we don't care because they're not really Americans. Right. Right. And that's all there was to it. They aren't really Americans is probably the best summary of the official stance of the United States government to Maria that you can conceivably offer. Yeah, that's right. And you can imagine like if they had representatives in Congress, if they were a purple state, right? Not just a state, but a competitive (laughs) state, like how different that might have been. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Just like if they had any ability to influence the fucking body politic at all. Right. Right. You could imagine it playing out differently. Fuck, they might have got more aid if they were a foreign country entirely. Right? Yes. <laughs> I, I, that's honestly, it honestly feels true. Yeah. You know, Trump just like going down there and like just saying the dumbest shit you ever heard in your fucking life. Like, obviously, and this is one of those things where like I was doing some background reading for this and you just like get reminded of some like insanely stupid fucking shit Trump said. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, this is a category five. No one had really ever heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> You're just right. like Jesus Christ. <laughs> One of those things that like wasn't was not was not top twenty five dumbest things Trump said, but you read it and you're like incredible. Like easily would have been top five, top three for just about any other president. Oh right, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, and you can tell that he that Donald Trump when he is talking about Puerto Rico, so you know, reeling in the wake of this massive hurricane, that he in his language is is separating Puerto Rico from the U.S. and from other Americans. So he he says stuff like Puerto Rico cannot continue to hurt our farmers and states with these massive payments. Right. So he's he's like mm-hmm. draw, he's drawing a straight up contrast between the United States, our states and Puerto Rico and and saying right, that right. Puerto Rico is hurting the states by like having been hit by a hurricane and needing help from its government, like its own government, the U.S. government, you know. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. This is all sort of out and out racism from him. But there's also a degree to which all of these colonial structures are self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like they can't vote for president. They don't have real congressional representation. Right. And so there's no mechanism for making the priorities and policies of the American government reflective of their needs and wants. And that does like in a very literal way, make them less American That's in right. the sense that they have less influence within America. Yeah. And over time, that lack of influence creates a socio-political distance from the rest of society. Right. And mm-hmm. then the government can point to that distance manufactured by its own policies and present it as sort of self-justifying, yes. right? They're not like us right. because they don't participate in our society and they don't participate in our society because they're not like yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think the inherent contradictions established by the insular cases are especially evident in cases and laws about voting rights in these colonies. Yeah. So we know that the insular cases establish that the U.S. government controls these places, but the Constitution doesn't fully apply there. So even though, like we've said, residents of these colonies are U.S. citizens, they can't vote for the president. They're not represented in Congress. So there's this case, Davis v. Guam, that comes out of a challenge to 
1997 law passed in Guam, basically establishing that they would hold elections in which native Guamanians, the Chamorro people, would vote on the political status of the island and choose whether to be like an independent nation, a state in the United States, or stick with the status quo. And this election was was going to be non-binding. Like, it would not have changed the political status of Guam. Instead, it was, like, supposed to be sort of a survey of native inhabitants of the indigenous people of Guam in an effort towards greater self-determination. And the plebiscite law, as it's called, said that voters would be, quote, native inhabitants of Guam. And it defined native inhabitants as, quote, persons who became U.S. citizens by virtue of the authority and enactment of the 1950 Guam Organic Act and descendants of those persons, end quote. So, you know, obviously there's no mention of race there. Well, in comes a white non-Chamorro resident of Guam, Arnold Davis, and he has something to say. <laughs> of course. Just, just like replacement level white guy name. Yes, it yep. really is. <laughs> Arnold Davis, backup shortstop for the... Uh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be Greg Johnson. Yeah. It could be. <laughs> it could be any of those. Right. Davis was denied permission to register to vote in that plebiscite election because he isn't a native inhabitant of Guam. So he turned around and sued Guam, saying that it is a violation of his 14th and 15th Amendment rights, as well as a violation of the Voting Rights Act mm -hmm. that he cannot vote in those elections. And the Ninth Circuit sided with him, saying Guam cannot deny the ability to vote to people based on their ancestry. Yeah, how dare you, Guam? Yeah. Right? And the Supreme Court denied review last year, meaning that that's the final decision. He wins. So after, and in fact, after winning in the Ninth Circuit, he wrote in a local paper in Guam that Chamorros, quote, play the race card and whine about historical injustices while sucking up every available dime bestowed by a benevolent nation, end quote. Jesus Christ. This man, just to recap, this man sued for voting rights in a place where the native inhabitants are U.S. citizens who cannot vote in American elections. And just so we're clear, biggest kicker ever, Davis was represented by the Center for Individual Rights, the same people who filed briefs in support of Abigail Fisher when she was <laughs> challenging affirmative action at the University of Texas, God. and the same people who won U.S. v. Morrison, which struck down part of the Violence Against Women Act, and we have an episode about that, and the same people who challenged provisions of the Voting Rights Act as unconstitutional all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one's making me mad, Rhi. I did not. It's bad, dude. I'm sorry. No, it's really bad. I it's did not really uh, read up on this case before the. Uh, I usually get some of my initial anger out yeah. on like the first read. Right. And this one I didn't prep for and it's really hitting my brain yes. right in the front. The fact that the Supreme Court denied review in Tua Ua saying like, no, you're not fucking citizens. The 14th Amendment doesn't apply to you right. in the territories, but then also denied review in this case saying, yeah, of course, the 14th Amendment gives <laughs> right. uh, white people the right to vote yes. in, in Guam yes. is like just like like they're not the same case, but it's like such an obvious like yeah. contradiction 
Unless your view is that white people get everything and brown people get nothing. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So a 5-4 listener, Leilani Rania Ganser, she wrote to us about this case, Davis versus Guam. And Leilani is actually from Guam. She is Chamoru. And in fact, she's from the JJ and Romeo clans. And I just wanted to quote her writing about this case on the effect of the case and the irony of it that we're talking about here today. She said after Davis v. Guam, Quote, now, thanks to nine people in a room 8,000 miles away from the island, the government of Guam owes this white supremacist ass $1 million in legal fees. Meanwhile, the Marines just dug up a gravesite that went undisturbed for a thousand years. They took my ancestors' bones and put them in paper bags that they moved into the military offices without prior consent of the indigenous population. They test bombs in the same place my grandmother survived the attempted genocide of the Chamorus in the 1940s. After the nuclear bombs were tested in the Pacific, Guam had higher levels of radiation than many places in the Marshall Islands. All of us have relatives who have cancer, and yet we can't vote for our independence, can't elect our own equitable representatives or our leaders in our colonial government. But we can still serve in the military which Pacific Islanders do at rates unmatched by any other ethnicity in largely frontline positions, meaning we also die at a rate more than twice the military average. So I think it's important to center the effect of these cases, these laws that were passed, you know, over a century ago. Um, but they still have massive effect on real people, mm-hmm. millions of people who live in these colonies and who suffer under this legal regime. That's right. There's something like so transparent about this shit that just gets to me like when it comes to like voting restrictions of the type that have been litigated in the past year around the election right republicans have these like ostensible reasons that they can toss out there like oh they're combating fraud or whatever right yes but when you talk about like the wholesale exclusion of entire islands and regions from the body politic right you're talking about something else right you're talking about subjugation yeah people who rule over you without your say or approval Right. right all of the like political debate about this is like completely fake bullshit because Republicans know that these places would vote Democratic. So like just like with voting rights, like they have to concoct something. Right. But yes, like the bottom line is like pretty simple. You either believe in democracy conceptually or you don't. Right. Like and obviously they do not. And it's so obnoxious to have to do this fucking song and dance. And like the longer this goes on, the farther behind the demographic shifts they are the more openly you start to see it, right? Because, like, the facade can't hold. And so now you'll see conservatives more expressly talk about, like, well, maybe, like, only the smarter people should be voting and shit like that. And you're you're starting to see, like, the National Review line shift from, like, voter fraud stuff to, like, well, we should really just have voting restrictions to keep people who are uninformed out, right? Which is, again, also obvious bullshit because you get people informed enough like then they have college degrees and Republicans sure as fuck don't want only people with college degrees voting. Right. Uh, right. Let alone like post-grant degrees or whatever. Right. Right. That's indoctrination, of course. Right. But whatever fucking elementary school civics is not indoctrination. But once you get like higher education, it is. Everything is just so fucking transparently bullshit. Right. right. I find it like impossible to like engage in serious discussion because it's such a bad faith discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. It makes me fucking crazy because I have heard in the last, I don't know, nine months, 10 months, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer say so many fucking times 
that we need a strong Republican Party. <laughs> and it's like, right. fuck you. We need a strong Democratic Party. Because right. a strong Democratic Party that stopped giving a shit about like the charades that Republicans put on, their fake outrage, their obvious bad faith arguments, and just passed this shit. Just made right. Puerto Rico a state. Just made right. D.C. a state. Just fucking passed the H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and all that shit and made the Republicans have to actually compete. Yeah. Right? Right. So you, you can't gerrymander your way to a House majority anymore. Sorry. Yeah. You can't right. disenfranchise your way into a Senate seat in North Carolina or right. wherever anymore. Sorry. That Republican right. Party might be the quote unquote strong Republican Party you want it to be. They're fucking weak because you let them be weak. That's right. By being pushovers, by not fighting for this shit. It makes me so fucking angry right. that they let people just be trampled on. Right. 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 What is angering about it is that meanwhile, while the circus continues, right, on cable news right. and all of that stuff, meanwhile, people are suffering. Like, that's yeah. the bottom line. People right. suffer. Yeah. Like, I'm not interested in engaging in. And like, I look, I. I'm a practical solutions kind of guy compared to your average like lefty, right? I get that there's fucking political compromise and shit like that. Sure. Like I'm not interested in negotiating with like the subjugation of of our colonies. I'm right. just not. I'm That's just right. not. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. it it's almost like it's almost hard to be insightful about cases like these because like when something is like blatantly racist it's not very insightful to say like wow that's you know that shit's racist <laughs> you fucking nailed it <laughs> right, dude yeah. bullseye <laughs> yeah 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 uh-huh. give this guy the nobel prize yeah <laughs> when like you know the congress people at the time are just like well these people are savages you know there's not yeah. much else you can say no. about that right, right? Of course. and the same thing is true of the fact that they can't fucking vote right, right? like when people yes. literally cannot functionally exercise any form of popular will it's not insightful to say, well, like, that's not very democratic. <laughs> right, right. And right. I think the takeaway from these cases is not that these systems were racist and anti-democratic, but that the modern present day relationships between the United States and its colonies are not meaningfully different in any way. That's right. At no point in the last century did someone introduce a new non-racist justification for the legal status of Puerto Rico or Guam or any other so-called territory of the United States. Mm -hmm. The status quo is the result of the continued momentum of the racism of the Supreme Court in 1901, right. which itself was the result of the continued momentum of like manifest destiny and the fucking trail of tears yes. and everything else America did to get the scope of global influence that right. it was at by the end of the uh, by the end of the 19th century. Right. The only difference now is that it's colored by rhetoric that is like slightly transposed and tempered by modern politics. That's right. But it's the same fucking shit. You know, that's what I kept thinking when I was reading these cases. The fucking drama around Hurricane Maria doesn't happen without the Supreme Court in 1901 right. deciding that this is the way to go. This is the path we are going down that's as a right. nation. Right. Uh, it's it's fucking haunting and gross. Just think about how powerful you'd feel, though, if you knew that, like. You could write something today and people would die 120 years later as a result. Oh, God. <laughs> Back then, the Supreme Court justices were just like literally killing human beings for sport. So right. not. Right. That's right. Yeah. And before we go, we want to uh, acknowledge a former First Circuit judge. He was at, at one point the chief judge of the First Circuit, Juan Torueya. 
He just recently died just a few months ago, so may he rest in power. He's written about the Insular cases very powerfully and persuasively. You can find some of his writings in the University of Pennsylvania Journal of International Law and an article called The Insular Cases, The Establishment of a Regime of Political Apartheid. He was a critic of Tuaua, the United States, the recent case that like expanded the insular cases influence uh, and importance in modern American law. A powerful writer who you should be reading if you're interested in these issues at all. Yeah. And by the way, I went through the rest of his body of work pretty quickly, but he he, he looked uncancelable at a glance. So <laughs> feeling good about it. All right. I think we'll leave it at that. Although I probably ran about this shit for a, a solid another hour. Yeah. There's so much to say. Yeah. You didn't want to go free Palestine, Ray? You OK? Yeah. No, uh, free Palestine next time. Next week is Bowles v. Russell, a case about how If a judge gives you the wrong deadline and you abide by that deadline, you might inadvertently spend your life in prison. (laughs) That's a very quick summary of the case. Hear more next week. Constitutional rights hinge on the ability of judges to do first grade math. (laughs) (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at 54pod, all spelled out. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We love and appreciate you. We will see you next week. All right. 5-4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was fact-checked by Nicole Martin and produced by Rachel Ward, with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. (laughs) 